That deserves an amen, doesn't it? Man, that was from Handel's Messiah. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 49. Jennifer and the kids are at the beach for a few days, and I'm going to join them this afternoon. And it's actually a pretty good system. I come down a day later, and I bring all the stuff they forgot. <laughs> and it saves me hundreds of dollars at Walmart, right? So to you families, I just recommend that going forward, that one of you stay behind for a day, and you will save so much money. Uh, now, I had a lot of you last week that asked me, after that sermon of Philippians 4, what's going on in the church? What's the conflict? <laughs> Are you and the elders getting along? Are they being mean to you? Uh, there's no conflict. Let me just say that, it, it's in fact, we are having a remarkable time of peace, unity in our church, which is what Jesus prayed for in John 17. And that's the reason I preached that sermon in Philippians 4 is because it's when you have peace and unity and gospel prosperity in your church, that's when the enemy will always attack with times of conflict and division. And so that sermon was all about um, discipling us to prepare for what might happen in the future, to maintain the peace and harmony in the church. You preach on unity. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, Isaiah 49. In chapters 40 to 48, we, we see this amazing prophecy that a deliverer by the name of Cyrus, King Cyrus, a Persian king, he'd be raised up from God's people, or, or I'm sorry, raised up and deliver God's people from slavery in Babylon. And then 150 years after that was written, it's exactly what happened. Now, he was their physical deliverer, you might say. And in fact, Isaiah calls him a Messiah. He says he's the anointed one, which is another way of saying he was a Messiah. He was a deliverer, not the Messiah, but a Messiah. And on the heels of that, we see a spiritual deliverer promised. So not only would it, it be physical deliverance from slavery that God was going to bring, but he was also going to bring a spiritual deliverance. Isaiah 49 is one of four servant songs, songs about the suffering servant of God that's going to come. 42 was the first one. You can go back and listen to that if you need to. It's on podcast or our church website. 49 here today, 50, 52, and 53. Those are the four. Now, they all give us the work of this suffering servant that's going to come, Jesus. And when he begins his ministry in Luke 4, he goes into the synagogue, which was the church of the day, and he takes up Isaiah 49, and he reads, claiming that I am the suffering servant. Come to do everything that God told you the suffering servant would do. Now, what is surprising are these words, listen, from Isaiah 49. I have labored in vain spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Now, my friends, 
often that is just how we feel, isn't it? We ask ourselves, is there anything good coming from everything that I am doing? Yet what we see here is God has a design and a purpose in my labors, even when I don't see it or perceive that He is working. So let's just read Isaiah 49. We'll just go 1 to verse 7, and then we'll we'll pick up here in two weeks. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant. Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings, shall see and arise. Princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful. The Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Let's, let's pray for our time. Oh Jesus, we, we worship you right now and we thank you that you are you're the Messiah of Isaiah 11. You're the Son of Man of Daniel 12, and you're the suffering servant of here in Isaiah 49. Lord, you're the fulfillment of all those expectations. And one man, fully God. And we praise you now. And yet what's amazing when we read this is in your humanity, you struggled with feelings of vanity. Father, and you know that we can struggle with such things as well, feeling that what we work at with our hands and our hearts and our minds come to nothing. Lord, and I pray that we would have the same hope as the suffering servant, that we would know and rest our judgments upon our work in the hands of the Lord, knowing that you are a good Father and that you use the greatest and the smallest of efforts for your kingdom. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would work mightily now in our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. She was so depressed at her situation that often at night she would get out of bed in the middle of the night. She'd walk down to the lake that was in front of their house and she would get into the small metal boat and paddle out and just for hours until the sun came up, just watching 
the stars. Cindy and her husband had been radically converted in the 1980s, and they had gotten deeply involved in the student ministry of the local university close by. They'd gotten deeply involved in immigrant ministry. Their house was hustling and bustling with people. University students, immigrants, staying, sharing the gospel, Bible study. She had poured herself out for years and years, discipling so many people. But now their children were grown. And Cindy felt disconnected from life, from all those previous relationships, from her old friends. And so she just spent hours reflecting on her ministry and her life and was constantly overcome with feelings that what she had laid her hand to and labored at was nothing but vanity. Had she spent her gifts and abilities on nothing? So every night she would leave her husband in bed and she'd go out and lay in her little boat and watch the stars hoping that her feelings would change. Now, often... We can labor and we can pour our lives out and work, ministering to the needs of others, cleaning piles of dirty clothes in our house that never seem to get smaller, teach countless children in our classes, and we wonder, am I doing all this in vain? Where's the fruit Lord, from my view, this seems to be wasted time and energy. I'm not seeing a harvest here. You know, the the Savior felt very much the same. Isaiah 49, Isaiah is describing the work of the suffering servant of God. And God speaks over him and says, You are my servant, who will, like an arrow in my quiver, bring salvation to the ends of the earth. What a word! You're the one that's going to restore the curse and the fall and bring salvation to mankind. Wow. And notice, even though he has God's assurance, he feels something very different in the midst of his trials. He has labored as a preacher and a prophet, and he feels for nothing. He says, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing, nothing but vanity. The nation has not repented. I'm not what they want. They reject him and his message in such a complete way that they crucify him as a common thief. But the verse doesn't end there. (laughs) He says this, the conclusion there, verse 4, Surely my judgment is with the Lord, though, and my work with my God. And so what he's saying is, surely my work and judgments of my situation must be from the Lord. And how I feel must come from Him. You know, often we judge things, good or evil, in the present, by how they make us feel, or what immediate results we see. And I think we can be too simple in our judgments of how God is working or how God is not working. Or what God is blessing or what God is not blessing. We judge if He is working based upon things like our prosperity. Is what I'm doing prospering? The ease of the situation? 
the immediate fruit that comes from it. But often God is doing something far greater and harder to perceive. The work of humility in people. Building faith, patience, trust, love in our hearts, sanctification, Christ's likeness, redeeming and drawing others to Himself. Now, feelings of sorrow and vanity often feeling make the best discoveries in our lives. When they drive us to the promise of God and trust in His sovereign power to bring good out of the labor of our hands. In other words, these feelings God can use to bring amazing discoveries when they drive us the same place that we see with the Messiah here. The place where we say, Lord, I know what I see, but yet I trust my judgments of the situation into your hands and your work. And I rest there. So here's the main idea today. The fruits of your labor, you must trust, are in God's hand. In other words, your judgments of the fruits of your labor, you must trust in God's hands. Okay? The discouragements of the suffering servant. Let's see a few things about that. Look in your Bibles at verse 1 and 2. Notice this about him. He's called from the womb. He's called from the womb. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, and from the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. Now remember, remember the big picture of what's going on here. Beginning of chapter 40, we have a new section, a new thought. And Isaiah says, Comfort, comfort my people. So, so we're moving away from judgment, and now we're moving to this comfort. What's God going to do to restore his people who have been taken in exile in Babylon? How's he going to comfort them? Well, he's going to restore them to their home, to Jerusalem, out of slavery. Chapter 45, let me just read that. Thus says the Lord to his anointed Cyrus, King Cyrus of Persia, whose right hand I have grasped and subdued nations before him and loosed the belts of kings to open doors before him. I will break into pieces the doors of bronze. So God will raise up a pagan king to bring them home, a physical deliverance. But he will also then bring a spiritual redemption to them by raising up a servant who is a prophet for spiritual salvation. Verse 1, notice what he said. This one would be called from the womb. When you see that language, that means it's a divine calling. It's the same language that we see in the prophet Jeremiah, called from the womb, set apart. And notice The song is a command then to listen to the nations. Give ear, listen to this one who is called from the womb. Verse 2, he made my mouth as a sharp sword. He made me a polished arrow. So Cyrus's weapons to kick in doors and to conquer nations and free Judah 
was military power. The servant's weapon is his word. You see, he is a preacher. He's a prophet. Fulfilling a totally different need than King Cyrus. He's a polished arrow. means he is equipped and ready to go and do the work of God in the hearts of people. But not now. Verse 2, look with me. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. In his quiver he hid me away. So the servant prophet who will penetrate people's hearts and minds with his words and bring salvation is hidden from view until God's perfect time comes. And that's what makes Luke 4 so amazing because Jesus stands up, doesn't he, in the local church and he's saying, it is fulfilled, Isaiah 49. I stand before you to tell you I am the one who's been hidden and is now revealed. The suffering servant. Do you see that? Does that make sense? Now, notice the name and purpose of this servant. Verse 3. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom will be, I will be glorified. So the servant will bring glory to God. He will reveal God's greatness. But just like he named Cyrus as the deliverer, he gives the name of the servant. And it's Israel. Stop. Wait. Okay, Rusty. Doesn't that mean the servant is not a person, but that he is referring to the nation of Israel doing all this? Isn't this a prophecy about the nation Israel? Right? It's what our Jewish brothers who reject the Messiah say. Look, no, 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 no. It's not about Jesus. It's about Israel. Can't you see? He even says it. It's Israel. You Christians have got it all wrong. Well, it can't be the nation of Israel. Several reasons. First, verse 5. It says the servant will bring salvation to Israel. Israel can't bring salvation to Israel, right? It's obvious he is calling the servant Israel for a different reason. Okay? Why, why does he call him Israel? Well, there's a clue. Look in your Bibles at chapter 48, verse 1 with me. 48.1. Context is king. When you have tricky things, you look around at the context. And that's usually where you find your answer. Verse 1. Listen. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or not rightly. Stop. Notice the house of Jacob, right? The house of David. That is the nation of Israel. No longer lives up to the name of their mission. Even though they take the name, they're called Israel, and even though they confess the God of Israel, he's saying it's only in words. They're not fulfilling the mission of Israel. They don't confess God in truth. And just after that, in chapter 49, he says of the servant, you are my servant Israel. And he means the servant will accomplish the work the nation Israel was charged to do. He fulfills the work and the the ministry given to Israel. Okay, back up from that. Let me give you a bigger picture. 
The bigger picture that makes perfect sense is all the persons, the events, the institutions of the Old Testament, including the nation of Israel itself, find their perfect fulfillment in the work and the person of Christ. It is all a picture or a shadow or a foretaste of what is to come. And so Israel was to be missional. From the very beginning, they were to preach and spread the gospel to the nations. It's part of the reason that he planted them right in the highway of the ancient world. They were to be a light on the hill. And God is saying, there's coming another Israel who will fulfill that mission. And he goes on and tells us later on, we'll talk about next week, who will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Yes, he'll bring salvation to Judah. Yes, he'll bring salvation to Israel. But he will bring it to the ends of the earth. He is the true Israel. Now, notice all the promises of God given to the suffering servant. But it doesn't. Just give me a minute. Well, maybe the Lord wants me to end there. Okay. It doesn't make his life and his ministry less difficult and full of disappointments. Verse 4 and verse 7a, the beginning. Let me read it. This is how he responds. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet, surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Verse 7, the very beginning. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation. Stop there. Notice those words in verse 4, in vain. Do you see that? I have spent my strength for nothing. That word means no results. The servant felt He had toiled, he had labored with no results, no fruit. Now, does that surprise you that that is describing how Jesus often felt? Does Does that surprise you? Well, it shouldn't. It is not a statement of disbelief, but one of fatigue and exhaustion with dealing with man's heart and man's sin. And remember verse 7, he was despised, he was hated by the nations, he was betrayed, he was abandoned, he was forsaken, even by his own disciples. The very nation he came to save hated him, executing him on a cross, a public sign that this one is cursed by God. And in his despair, that so few believed and repented, He did just the opposite of what the nation of Israel did. He turned towards God, verse 4. Look at that with me. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Which means, even though everything seems my mission is vanity, God has abandoned me. I am laboring in vain. I am alone on this cross. Yet I know... My judgments are how I see my work is from the Lord's perspective. And the fruit of my labor is in God's hands. And I, says the Messiah, will rest there. 
James Chalmers was a British missionary in Papua New Guinea, better known as P&G, in the 1800s, and he and his wife, they traveled all the small islands, which there's hundreds of them, to preach the gospel to cannibals and to people who were very unfavorable to him. His wife got sick, and they didn't think it was serious, and so they sent her on a little boat to Australia to recover. When James Chalmers heard the news that his wife's sickness had gotten much worse, he got on a boat to Australia, and when he arrived, it was too late. Not only had she died, not only had they had her funeral, but she had already been buried. He wasn't able to say goodbye to his wife that labored with him to bring the gospel to Papua New Guinea. Can you imagine the sadness, the feelings that you are alone? Where's my God? The confusion, maybe anger towards God, leaving your wife in the ground, and not in a good ground like New Zealand, but Australia? That's a joke. He had labored for years. He preached the gospel through the islands. And what he got was the death of his wife, her burial away from his family in an unknown cemetery, left with an unknown people. And now to labor in the hard soils of P&G, wouldn't you just want to say, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. I'm going to go back to Scotland where they love me. But instead of pulling away from God, he pushed into him and he wrote these words. May I live more for Christ. All for Christ and Christ all. That's another way of saying the fruit of my life and labor are all in his hands. And I will trust his judgments. Now why should his people expect the work and messages that come from our life to be accepted and applauded by the world if we're following the life, the teachings, and the examples of the servant that the world hated. And in such an environment, doesn't it also make sense that you too will have seasons where you fill all your labor with raising children in the faith, with patiently working with a difficult boss and you show him grace because you want him to know the Lord, raising children who are not your own in your own home, And you don't see the fruit that you want. And you feel it's for nothing. It's not produced the results that I'd hoped for. And we can feel like a failure. What do you do in such seasons? Three things. Let's close here. First, don't smother your troubles and your feelings. Don't smother them. As Christians, so often we feel like our answer to how is it going must be, Oh, it's going great. It's going better than great. It's going awesome. But maybe it should be. How's it going? I feel like I'm laboring in vain right now. My child that went to Providence Christian School and sat at my table every night through family devotions, she's now living with her boyfriend. And I feel like I've been laboring in vain for 25 years in that girl's life. And we respond often to those feelings of vanities in two bad ways. First, we smother it. 
We smother our troubles with lots of things like more business, extra hours at work, gaming late into the night, shopping consistently and constantly, pouring our troubles out on Facebook or pornography. Or if it's not smothering it, we hide it from God. Sometimes we're convinced that good Christians should feel nothing but happy. And it is wrong to pour out my feelings to God. We are confusing, complaining to God, and complaining about God. Let me read to you Psalm 142, verse 2 and 3. Listen to David. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed him my trouble. Grief is eased by groaning to God. We, who else should we go to in our times of pain but to our Father? Because who else can really help us, show us compassion? God loves when a hurting Christian, a Christian who is feeling that their labor is in vain, comes to Him with their burdens because they are coming in humility, in confidence in God rather than in their own flesh, and faith that through Christ they have gospel access to God regardless of how bright or how dark our days are. Of course, this is the very thing Christ did, isn't it? Just before the cross, asking the Father, He comes to Him, take this cup from me, yet not my will, yours be done. Second, second. So don't smother your troubles. Second, don't let your grief control you. Don't let it control you. Often we allow our grief to have too much and too long a control over our lives. You say, what does excessive grief look like and sorrow look like? Well, grief is excessive when it continues to dominate and darken all areas of our life so that the clouds of sorrow make everything else dark as well. And the darkness never leaves, nor do we want it to leave sometime, so that all aspects of our lives are controlled by sorrow and a feeling of vanity, and it becomes our constant companion. We actually grow to like it. And verse 4 says, Fixing our eyes on the truth that surely my judgments are with God and the fruits of my labor are in His hands is the road out. Third, and we'll finish with this. Jesus promises comfort in your suffering. Just before Jesus is to send out His disciples, He says to them, Luke 6.21, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Christ promises His disciples, when you mourn, I will comfort you. Now what makes all the difference is when you experience Jesus and the greatness of His compassion in the midst of your suffering. Remember verse 2. Jesus' words are like a sharp sword, like a polished arrow, which is a call for His people to listen to Him and His Word and allow His Word to penetrate the depths of our sorrow, our feelings of, with the truth and light of hope. In other words, those arrows that he's talking about, the servant being, are not just to bring salvation. It is to bring hope and light into times when you feel your labors have been in vain. Let me just close with this. William J., the old Baptist minister, says this. 
The path of sorrow and that path alone leads to the land where sorrow is unknown. No traveler ever reached that blessed abode who found not thorns and briars on the road. Let's pray. Father, I just praise you that you sent a Savior, a suffering Savior. Lord, I thank you that he is the Davidic king. He's the king, the Messiah to bring salvation. But he's also the suffering servant. The one who would serve us by carrying our sins on the cross and yet has an ongoing ministry to us, Lord. And we know that if he had feelings that his work was done in vain, certainly we will as well. And God, yet we don't want to camp out there. We don't want that to be our constant companion. Father, we want to take those legitimate feelings and yet come to the truth of the sovereignty and the goodness of God our Father and let our judgment be that God works all things together for the good of those who love Christ and are called according to His purpose. We pray this in the name of our Messiah, our suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Amen.